You guys so much. I love that new song. This is fantastic. I love it when songs have lyrics that are like basically pulled right out of scripture. It's like, mmm, yum, yum, yum. It's good for my soul. Hey, my name is Tim Griesbach. I get to be one of our pastors here at Crossroads Church. And I want to welcome you to week two of our Ask Anything series. Um, if you missed last week, you definitely want to check it out because Pastor Matt got to answer a handful of fantastic questions. And uh, we do this once during the year, usually, in order to just kind of get a sense for where you're at and to give you an opportunity to reach out and say, hey, I've always had this kind of thing that I've wondered about with regards to Christianity. Uh, what is this all about? And uh, we really want to have a little bit of time throughout the year where we can just address your questions and interact with that together and so if you still have some questions, I'd invite you. You still have one week to go. Last, next week will be the last week. Pastor Matt will wrap us up. And so if you want, you can text any questions that you still have to the number 720-230-6865. And uh, that'll get to Pastor Matt and he'll be able to take that into consideration and decide if he wants to use that for our very last week, which will be next week. Well, as we get ready to answer a couple questions, I want to make sure that this isn't just a fun intellectual exercise, but that we're really coming to God's word with the attitude of saying, okay, God, will you please lead us, help us to submit to you, really help us let you call the shots in our lives as our king. And so I'm going to pray and invite God to do that, and then we'll jump right in. So Father, we thank you that you are faithful and we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've not just left us on our own to figure it all out, Lord, but that you've spoken to us and you continue to speak to us through your spirit and you lead us and you guide us and you're with us throughout all of it. And so I pray right now for me here and for anyone hearing this or watching this, Lord, I pray that you would be with every single one of us as we approach your word. May you help us to see your truth in it and help us to submit our hearts before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first question we get to ask is this. It says, I notice that some of the songs we sing seem to come from churches with potentially questionable theology. What's up with that? Now, before I jump into that, I just want to talk for just a second about the interesting reality that we do sing songs when we get together. I mean, even in this weird COVID season, we are singing music because there's something about the gathering of the people of God to worship God that almost always involves some form of music, some form of singing. And in fact, I'm guessing that if you're kind of new-ish to online church, if you're checking out our church or others online, you might be wondering like, man, why is there so much music? Like these people just sing all the time. What is going on? And it's really because when you encounter, when we have encountered truth and reality like we see represented in God's word, his story as it's laid out before us, when we experience that, when we see that, we're like, man, that just, I feel like that just requires a holistic response. And there's something about music that allows us to combine the mind and the heart and the will, or if you'd prefer, the intellect, your thought life, your emotions and feelings and your expressions all together in one experience together. 
And so that's why we sing a lot. And singing is going to continue to be important for us. Like we're never going to stop singing because like even at the very end of it all, when we're gathered before Jesus, we're going to be singing new songs even then to him and proclaiming that he is faithful. We're going to be talking about the cross. We're going to be just talking about and singing about how awesome he is. And so because we sing, it's a good question to say like, where do we get these songs from that we're singing? How do we actually go about choosing what songs? And as you start to dig into where the songs that are being sung by churches all over the United States, at least, and to some degree all over the world, like where are they coming from? You start to discover that there are a handful of churches that are really writing and producing a large majority of the songs being sung by churches. These churches specifically are like Bethel Church, Elevation, Hillsong, I think Jesus Culture. Like these churches are contributing an overwhelming amount of the content that is being used by the people of God across the world, really, to sing praises to him. And so people are asking, some people at least, are asking this question. They're saying, well, wait a second, but Bethel, they teach some stuff that's like, do we agree with that? Or like Elevation, they teach some stuff, and I, I don't think we agree with everything that, that they say. Like, so should we be singing songs that come from places where maybe they believe other stuff than we believe? Shouldn't we maybe sing songs that just come from stuff that believe exactly what we believe, right? Or, or at least like within this range or like how do you determine that? And I got to confess in my own life, I have a tendency towards legalism. Like I really like rules. And so I have a tendency when I'm approaching this question to be like, well, you know what? Yeah, we should just like, we should cut it off here and we should cut it off here and we should cut it off here. And like, like if you don't actually agree with us about this point way over here, then we're not going to sing your song, even though the song itself doesn't actually talk about any of that stuff that we don't agree with. And, and so like to that end, I'm really thankful for this one passage that Paul writes in the book of Philippians. It's in chapter one because it addresses a similar kind of situation. What's going on there is he's been proclaiming the gospel and there's some people that have been also proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming the right gospel, but they've got some weird messed up motivations going on. And uh, his response to that is just really helpful for me as I'm approaching this question for us. He says this, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There's something beautiful here when Paul is looking at these actual adversaries of him, and they're proclaiming the gospel, but they've got these motives that are kind of mixed up, and they're actually wanting to hurt him. I mean, you can probably be sure that the other stuff they're teaching is not going to be good stuff. <laughs> and he looks at them and he goes, they're preaching Jesus. And all I know is when Jesus is preached, people get saved. The Holy Spirit intervenes and opens the eyes of their hearts and they see him for the beautiful Savior that he is and they get rescued. So he's like, man, at the end of the day, I'm just thankful that God's going to continue doing his work, whether it's through us or through others. And so for me, when I approach that then with regard to our music, I go, okay, so maybe it's not just like every little aspect about these people who are producing or creating the content that we're using. Maybe we should just look at the message that is being given to us 
and say like, is this useful for us as the people of God? And more specifically, like our team, Brad, Mandy, Amanda, myself, Jared, like we say like, is this useful for us as crossroads to worship Jesus as our king truly? Like is the song itself theologically accurate? And that gets a little bit tricky, right? Because like the only way you can know if something is theologically accurate is you kind of have to have a good sense of theology. And theology is just the matter of taking what's on this page and making sense of it in light of what's on this page and then doing that with the next page and the next page and just all of scripture saying, okay, like God gave us his word in order to inform us, to lead us, to grow us, to train us in righteousness and how to follow him well. And so we take these songs and we take them to Scripture and we say, does it hold up here? And if it does, then we have all kinds of other questions about genre and style and like, does it have the right feel or mood or stuff like that? But really, at the end of the day, we take it to Scripture. And there's this passage later in Philippians. It's in chapter 4, it's verse 8, that really kind of sums up how we approach the idea of will this song like make it? Does it make the cut for us in terms of the theology in the song? And it says this, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so I can assure you of two things for us here at Crossroads Church. The first is that we absolutely take it seriously. The responsibility of placing words in the mouths of God's worshipers, in in your mouths, like you're singing the songs often that we are playing here. We take that really seriously, the weight of that responsibility. And we have lots of conversations around it and, and, and deliberate about whether or not songs should be played or not, if they line up with God's word or not. And the second thing I can guarantee you is that at times we get it wrong. (laughs) I know that there have been lots of conversations we've had as a leadership team where we kind of look back at a song that we've sung and gone, okay, hold on. I'm looking at that song more carefully now and I'm starting to wonder, like, should we actually be singing that? And we'll have those conversations. And so that's how I want to answer this first question about singing the songs and how we choose it. We really care. We really want it to match up up against God's word. And we want it to be useful for us when it comes to setting our minds in the right spot to lead to those right emotions, those best possible emotions that then finalize in expressions of worship to the king. So that's question number one. Question. Question number two, what exactly is the new covenant? If you were paying attention so far, you probably heard the phrase new covenant in one of the songs, in the last song that we sang. And then Pastor Chris referenced it again when we took communion. He talked about the cup of the new covenant. And that that word covenant isn't one that we use a whole lot. But the easiest way for us to really think about covenants are agreements or contracts or promises made between two parties. Uh, And sometimes one party will kind of hold all the responsibility for that covenant and sometimes that responsibility for fulfilling it is shared and there's consequences if it's not. And so when it comes to the covenants that we see within Scripture, uh, they're actually a really big deal because one of the major themes of Scripture is God proving his faithfulness to keep his promises. 
And so if we're going to take a look at trying to understand what the new covenant is, I think it's first important for us to go back and take a look at what the old covenant is, or really it's old covenants because there's kind of a string of them. And so we'll, we'll just fly through that real quick going back. There's like five of them or so that I'll, I'll talk about today. And different people have different numbers depending on what they consider to be covenants. But for the sake of this, I think we've got, yeah, I've got five that I'll point us to that help us inform the old covenant as we lead into understanding this new covenant, these promises between God and man. So the first covenant took place all the way back at the beginning. God made Adam and Eve and he gave them an opportunity to live in right relationship with them, but they chose to sin instead. They chose to disobey the aid of the fruit that was forbidden. And as a result, God sat them down and said, okay, here are the consequences of your decision to disobey. Like sin has now been introduced into this world and it's going to wreck everything. It's going to wreck your relationships. It's going to wreck creation itself. It's going to wreck everything. However, right there at the very beginning, God promised Adam and Eve that one of their descendants down the line at some point was going to show up and was going to defeat sin and make a way for humans to experience that original plan that God had for us and being right in relationship with him and walking with him in love and in joy and in peace. And so that's that first covenant. And it's just one-sided. God took all the responsibility. There were no strings attached. He just said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring about a Savior at some point through your lineage. You fast forward just a little bit and you come to a character uh, named Noah. And what's significant about him was that, sure enough, that sin that was going to ruin everything really did just ruin everything everything, like everything, everything. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, it talks about it as being so bad that the people just only thought about doing evil all the time. It's like, oh my gosh, this is just the worst. And so God, you know, took this one family, Noah, and his like sons and all of their wives and put them in a boat with a bunch of animals and then flooded the whole rest of the world. It's like he hit a giant reset button. And it's significant that he set aside Noah and his family because part of what he was doing here was saying, I'm not ignoring this first covenant that I made, this promise to Adam and Eve. Like one of your descendants absolutely will save the people from sin. But at this point in time, it's Noah and his family in the boat with the waters. And so when the waters receded, and God gave them back the earth, really, to repopulate and to redominate on some level, right? To co-rule with God. He made a covenant with Noah at that point in time. Didn't have to. One-sided, didn't ask Noah for anything in return. He just said, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm not actually going to do this again. I'm not going to flood the world again. Like, we're not going to make a pattern of this where every time it gets really bad, I'm just going to wipe it all over and start off. This is, that's it. And the way that you know that is I'm going to set up rainbows so that when you see rain clouds coming, you're not freaked out that I'm going to wreck everything again. But instead, you are reminded that I have good plans for you. So that's the second one. If you fast forward a bit more in the story in the Bible, you come across a character named Abraham, who's a, kind of a bit of a random guy. God just sort of looks out over all the people and chooses Abraham and says, I am going to create a special relationship with you, my dude. He says, I am going to make out of your family a great nation, which at the time, Abraham and his wife didn't have any kids. They're real old and they're just like, 
that's, is that what? Is that even possible? God's like, dude, nothing's hard for me. So he said, I'm going to make a whole nation out of you. And through your family, through this incredible nation, I'm not just going to bless you and your family. I'm going to bless the entire world. And what you can see here is a pointing back all the way to that first covenant made with Adam and Eve. Like, oh, this is probably connected to that Savior who's going to defeat the sin that keeps messing everything up. And again, it's this one-sided covenant where God just says, I'm going to do it. You fast forward again 400 years and sure enough, Abraham has this huge family, but they're found there in Egypt in slavery to the Pharaoh there. So God raises up Moses. Moses goes in, let my people go, takes them out of slavery from Egypt. And on the way back to Israel, like what we know in terms of the land of Israel, to give them that land where they can begin to be a nation with land and borders and all of that, they stop off at Mount Sinai. And it's real significant here because there God makes a new covenant, not the new, but it was a new one at that time, covenant with his people through Moses. And this one is different than the rest because this one kind of has some strings attached. It's a conditional. He says, I'm going to do all of this if you do all of this. And what God basically says is, here is my law. Here's what it means to live as my people. This is what this looks like to live in right relationship with me. If you follow this, if you do this, I will bless you. You will thrive. You will flourish. But if you don't, in my love, I'm going to discipline you. And I'm going to disperse you amongst the nations. And there's a, a hope attached to that. It was always this little glimmer of hope. But it was like it had consequences to it, right? Like real weight. And then if you fast forward a little bit more, you've got the people of Israel finally in the land of Israel and you've got kings set up. And one of those kings was King David. And God actually described his, him as being a man after God's own heart. And so God again just went to David and he said, I am going to do something amazing. One of your descendants is going to be not just a king over Israel, but the king, like, like the greatest king, the king of kings. He's going to rule in this beautiful, unbelievably perfect kind of a way. And again, if you're following that whole story throughout scripture, you're looking back at the promise made to Abraham and you're looking back at the promise made to Adam and to Eve, that the Savior is on his way. But as we know, the people of Israel weren't actually able to follow through on their end of their covenant, right? Like instead of worshiping God, they worshiped all kinds of other non-gods. And they didn't follow his rules around justice or mercy or walking humbly with God or any of this stuff. And so God in his love did disperse them and sent them out into exile. But even as they went, he reminded them of his incredible love for them and the hope that there was going to be a Savior to come. And this is where we get the first inklings of what this new covenant is. We see it described in Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the part of the story where Jesus comes on the scene. And all of the excitement around Jesus was because they kind of looked at him and thought like, whoa, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be that, that referenced savior? Is he going to be this, this king? And they had it in their idea of like a political king. They're just thinking too small. Because God had this plan for Jesus not to just be king over Israel, but king over all the creation. And the greatest king. And we see that Jesus becomes the mediator of this new covenant through his own death on the cross. He talked about it actually in Luke chapter 22. He's uh, administering what we call the Lord's Supper. It was the Passover meal for them. And it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant was being fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, all of these covenants were being fulfilled in Jesus. This is the beauty of the new covenant. It wasn't like a getting rid of or erasing all of the old covenants of God saying, okay, I'm just going to start over with a better idea. It was like God saying, hey, check this out. I've actually got this beautiful way of being faithful to every single promise I've ever made always, forever, in Jesus. And it's even better than they probably imagined before. Because the reality for us is that this new covenant really is this receiving of the Holy Spirit inside of us, enabling us to live as God's people. In fact, as I, if I had to describe it in just a simple phrase, like what is the new covenant? I'd say the new covenant is the gift of the Spirit of God to us by faith in Jesus, regenerating us and empowering us to live as the people of God now and forever. And man, there's a lot more that could be said about the covenants within Scripture and the New Covenant. If you want, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to have more conversation with you around that topic. But for today, that's how we're answering question number two. So we got one to go. Question number three, and it's this. What do you do when you don't feel like worshiping God? I want to, but I just don't feel like it. First off, I just want to say thank you for your vulnerability and honesty in asking that question and admitting the fact that you don't feel like it. Because honestly, me, I at times find myself there too. I find myself at times where my heart is just not quite where I think it ought to be, especially when it comes to something as important as worshiping God. This can be a cause of great concern for me. And so knowing that we're not just heart beings, right? We're like holistic beings. We, we have minds that think thoughts, and then we have hearts that feel feelings. But then we also have wills that have the ability to put it all into action. And so when I'm thinking through what it means for my feelings to not maybe be where I'd like them to be, I, I have, a, at least for me, something that I find helpful in terms of trying to understand it. 
Uh, and, and so it kind of comes in the form of an illustration, and it's this. It's, it's picture what you experience when you're gardening. You know, like Trevor, Pastor Trevor is a great gardener. I don't know if you know this about him, but he like makes peppers just grow up right out of the ground because he likes to eat hot things. And so, you know, he doesn't want to have to pay other people for those hot things. He wants to grow those hot things, which is exciting and fun. And, and so, but he doesn't like just, just say like, okay, pepper, grow. <laughs> this isn't how it works, right? Like, we all know that. If you want to grow peppers out of the ground, you've got to tend to the soil. Maybe put in some fertilizer. You've got to add water like on a regular basis. And you probably have to do some form of protection from either insects or other critters or other things. And then, and then out of all of that, like you have a lot of influence around the context. But it's within that context that the pepper actually grows. And then I find that our emotions a lot of times are like that. And that the context for us in which our emotions grow is our thoughts. That our minds ultimately lead to our emotions, which then can be expressed through our will in expressions of whatever it is, you know, the emotion expressed. And so for me, I find this helpful because, like, I'm not actually often in control of my emotions directly. I can't often just think to myself, you know what, Tim, you should just feel this way. But I do have a lot of control over the thoughts that I think. And oftentimes I find if my emotions aren't quite right, I find that uh, if I look at how I've been thinking, how I've been orienting my thoughts, or like what approach I've been taking towards managing my thoughts, that oftentimes if my emotions are kind of all over the place, it means my thoughts have been all over the place too. I find that at times when I'm being more influenced by Netflix than I am by God's word, <laughs> that who knows what my feelings are going to be like in those spaces. And so if our desire within worship, and remember, worship isn't just like what we do during singing. Worship is the bowing of a heart before a king. And we, when we worship Jesus, we bow our heart before him as king. We let him call the shots in our lives, knowing that it's for our good and for his glory. That when it comes to that, that there is some work that we can do in the in a whole part of our lives in order to influence the growth of the emotions that we would like to see. And so when I'm thinking about that, I try to think to myself like, well, what kind of thoughts should I be having? What thoughts would help develop and nurture and grow the kind of emotions that I want to have towards God? And if I'm thinking about that, I go, okay, well, let's, let's think about some grand, beautiful, awesome truths about God. For instance, there's this truth that we see. I'm going to carry it over from Romans 5 to Romans 8. And it says this. For while we were still weak. Wait, hold on. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then going to chapter 8. It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know if you've heard this story before, but when I think about this reality, the fact that the king, creator God, entered into his creation to rescue enemies of his and to make them his children, to bring them into family, I can't spend much time thinking about that before I start to experience the right kind of emotions towards God. And so I would encourage you, dig into God's word and find these incredible truths and realities and let that be the foundation for your thought life. And see what happens, see what grows in the garden of your own heart. These emotions that will come up. And as always with all of it, I always just ask God, God, will you please do this in me? Because like I can't. <laughs> I need your help desperately to produce in me that which I want to see towards you. And so as we wrap up this question, I just got to think to myself that there's probably some of you who haven't actually heard that story before, that maybe you've felt like an enemy of God, where you've looked at your life and you think, man, yeah, me and God are not on good terms. But you've never heard that he actually entered into creation specifically for you, specifically to rescue you from being his enemy and to make you one of his children. And if you hear that right now, and if you are like, well, okay, yes, yes, I would like that then. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to invite you to do something a little courageous. I'm going to invite you to respond right at the end of this. Uh, and we want to connect with you and have a conversation with you and talk to you about what it actually means to follow Jesus as Lord, to have him as the Savior in your life, to put your faith in him and get to experience God's plan for you that you might walk through this life as one of his own. And so I'm going to pray for you and then Pastor Chris is going to come up and close us out today. Father, I do. I, I ask you right now that you would be with us all, especially those, Lord, who are watching and who are thinking to themselves, man, maybe this is the day. Maybe, maybe this is the day that I take a step of faith where I decide to put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And God, I pray that you would give them courage and clarity of mind. And I pray that you would supernaturally be with them and open the eyes of their heart to see you in all of your beauty. To see the truth of your word. And to be able to respond in faith. To believe, just like Abraham did so very long ago. And God, I pray for the rest of us that you would help us. Help us, Lord to spend time meditating on your word that you might produce in our hearts such a beautiful garden that we would experience all of these beautiful, precious, best possible emotions in our lives, especially the ones that are directed towards you. Let us worship you, Lord, with our whole selves, I pray. And I thank you in advance knowing that you're going to bring this about in us. For we ask it in accordance with your will and in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.